Dialogic Disciple Podcast is a production of Northside Church, exploring discipleship and dialogue with the world as disciples of the word. Welcome to the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. I am here again. This is Dr. James Johnson with Dr. James Houston. Johnson. That's right, Dr. James Johnson, as of uh, a couple weeks ago. It sounds and, uh, good. Nick, it's good to have you with us again today. Um, how are you holding up? Things are going pretty well. I'm excited to get back into this conversation. I think we uh, we had a good good talk last week. Honestly, yeah, I, I I thought it might be one of the better podcasts we've done. I don't know if we're just getting better at it or if we just had better material with Dr. Bonfiglio's stuff. I'm not sure. <laughs> as I was as I was putting together our conversation uh, and 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 editing the podcast last week, I really felt that our conversation last week was um, fruitful, and you and I got a little personal even, and and talking about some of the things that. Um, that you know, we we claimed that the church doesn't really talk about that much. So I I felt encouraged by our conversation last week. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about the. Uh, it's just me and you talking, James. There's nobody listening. There's nobody listening. It's just me and you. Absolutely. <laughs> so we we've divided the conversation up into three different pieces, and um, today we will move toward his. Um, you know, what does it look like to actually take these practices of grief, these laments, and, and, and incorporate them into the church. Particularly, what does that look like in the book of Psalms? And so with that, I would like to turn to his conversation now. What would it look like then, as we look at the as we look at the Old Testament, and one of the major ways that the Old Testament writers themselves dealt with grief and despair is through lament. Um, I've spent a lot of time recently in the Book of Lamentations, um, and 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 kind of working through some of those as a way to not just uh, not just resource the community that I serve, but also for my own benefit. I wonder what it would look like if we incorporated a deeper appreciation of lament into our spiritual lives and our congregational practices. How would it change us? Yeah, I think that's such an important question, especially at a time like this, but really beyond uh, the COVID-19 crisis, we all have things to grieve and, and to begin to get a handle on how to process that, how to respond to it, how to understand ourselves with respect to grief is such an important part of our faith formation and here, as in many other places, you know, the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole doesn't give us a how-to manual. It doesn't give us the seven steps to expressing grief in the right way. It, it doesn't do that. But what it does so often, and I think so powerfully, is it shows us, it, it holds a mirror up to our lives and says grief isn't new. Grief has been mm -hmm. part of the rhythms of faith mm -hmm. of the people of God for centuries and ages. Grief is written into the narrative of Israel's life. You know, Israel, by and large, was a small, marginalized people group who was continually taken over by superpowers. Their cities were sacked, their temples destroyed, their land lost. Israel knew grief, whether it was the grief of Egypt or the grief, the grief of the Babylonian Empire. Grief is there at every turn. And, and so part of the faith of ancient Israel was to think about how do we form words and liturgies and practices of faith around the true feelings of grief that we have. And I think it's, there's many examples of that in the Old Testament, but it's, so, it's hard to miss. When your eyes are open for it, it's hard to miss that, it's, that grief is written all over the pages of our canon. All right, so as uh, Nick, as we as we come back together and and listen to some of what uh, Doctor Bonfiglio uh, is introducing here, um, he he, I think makes it a key piece to understand that that lament and grief are kind of all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, and uh, as we were talking last week about how much we as a church don't really uh, talk about this kind of stuff. I wonder what your what your initial response is to hearing that the Bible is full of grief. I always thought it was grief as an art form, like 
I don't know. It, it seemed like an impersonal, broad-based kind of a grief. It didn't have what do you mean by same, that? Um, I mean, particular, particularly as Ryan is talking about the Psalms, I think of the Psalms as anonymous poetry. And that there's something safe about expressing your grief anonymously. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And doing it in a in a in a broad kind of a sweeping anybody can associate with this type of grief way versus actually being in a close knit community and sharing your real feelings about very specific things with your identity on it. That's fascinating. I have not, I had not thought about that. And I don't think that's something that Ryan and I got into in our conversation, but the, the, the fact that you feel it's okay, it's okay to have anonymous grief or lament, but once it becomes personal or once it becomes known or named, uh, then it becomes uncomfortable. Um, I, you know, I, that's a, that's a fascinating thought. Uh, do you, I guess, do you feel, <laughs> so does that, does that mean that you think that, that reading a Psalm of lament or reading a lament from lamentations or something like that, if you're reading it, it it's kind of like you're protected by the identity of the author of the Psalm or the author of uh, lamentations, Jeremiah, or, or, and, and then you don't have to really express your own lament or your own grief because you're kind of under the, shroud of yeah that's an established socially acceptable event <laughs> like it, it i think it was interesting the way you asked me the question is not something that i was prepared to answer and <laughs> what do you think about the bible having lament in it right you know we've established i grew up reading the bible but i don't have a formal education in it and my perspective on lament in the bible is that that is it's, it's surrounded me my whole life. It's ubiquitous and anonymous. Yeah. I don't associate the grief in the Bible while I recognize we do think we know who authors are of some of the Psalms, but I, I don't think of them as being. You, you kind of think, you think of it as just like a, a generic kind of, this is the word of God lament uh, contained yeah. within. And it's not, yes. it doesn't matter if it's David, this David's like writing this, you know, or if uh, Jeremiah's writing this, that doesn't matter because you're not, you're not associated with those two guys. Right. I don't know, David. <laughs> I don't know old Jerry. Yeah, old Jerry. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, Dave and Jerry though, I think are pretty representative of what we are as, as a human race. Um, neither one of them perfect, uh, obviously. But that's exactly it, James. Representative. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. That's not fascinating. Because I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. Well, I guess I guess the question then, I mean, I wish I could ask Ryan this question. You know, how do we um and maybe maybe he'll give us some resources later in the interview for this, but um how do we how do we make that bridge then? How do we bridge your your anonymous lament as you read Psalm uh twenty two? with uh, your own personal lament or your own personal uh, grief as you try to write your own lament, as you try to express your own grief? How do you bridge that? I, I think that's an interesting place that we work on as we move through this conversation with Ryan. Yeah. As that's something that I want to come back to. So uh, as we, yeah. when we get to the end of this conversation in, in next week, I want to come back to that and say, you know, is, is, did we learn anything that helps us to make that bridge? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to write that down because that's really good. That's what I'm here for James. <laughs> Was there anything that, that as, as, as Ryan introduced uh, kind of the biblical uh, strategy for, for approaching grief through lament. Was there anything in this first part of this conversation that jumped out to you that, that you found particularly fascinating? Well, I think one of the things I would like to begin with is establish, we, we talked about grief last week and the kind of trouble we have expressing grief. And we move into lament and talk about lament in scripture, but it's failure to appear in liturgy. And I feel like we need to say something about 
why do we need lament? I don't want to do lament. What's the benefit of lament? Yeah. Yeah. What is the benefit of expressing grief in the first place? Yeah. I mean, well, I um, week by saying, you know, grandmama said crying don't fix nothing. Right. Right. So if we're going to talk about lament and it's going to be relevant. Then I need to understand why it's relevant about it. Well, yeah. what if I told you, what if I, as an initial kind of answer to that question, and I, and I think we're going to get more answers to that question as we move forward, but as an initial answer, I, I, I want to echo some of the words that Ryan uh, gave us here in this first part, where he talks about the fact that all, you know, scripture, all of scripture is kind of filled with this lament and grief, that there are, there are, there are uh, utterances of grief and lament in almost every uh, book in the Bible. And so there's this, there's this, uh, when we look to the Bible as being the kind of, um, the, the guidance, the, the, the guiding light uh, for our Christian walk, you know, or the primary source for our thinking about God and our relationship with God. If the biblical writers are expressing lament and expressing grief, then that's got to be, don't you think, a model for us? Doesn't that have to be an example that we should follow? Is that not enough motivation for you because the Bible tells you so, Nick? Is that not enough? Well, fortunately for you, I grew up conservatively enough that it is. <laughs> but I do think that when when Ryan was talking about how the Bible, uh, the Bible's form of lament or these kinds of uh, expressing of grief that we see in the Old Testament, at least, uh, they're they're not a how-to manual. They're not. This is how you have to do. Uh, lament. This is not how you have to express, but rather that it holds a mirror up to us and kind of shows us that grief is not something that's new. It's not something that uh, it's not something that we alone, this generation has 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 had to deal with, but rather that this is something that the people of God have been dealing with since the very beginning. And I think that I, if nothing else, I think that encourages us to feel free to lament to. Uh, express grief feelings that it is not acceptable it should be acceptable right right and I think we you we talked about this a little bit last week when we discussed the fact that if you don't express grief if you don't use these kind of uh, lamentations um, that grief will find a way to express itself one way or another and if it doesn't come out of lamentation if it doesn't come out in a public setting that is safe and that where we feel that we can truly trust those around us, then it's going to come out in other forms like uh, depression, deep depression. It's going to come out in anger. It's going to come out in violence. Do we see the Psalms as a positive way to express this grief so it doesn't come out? I, I think that way. I think I would call it positive, but it, at the very least, I would call it biblical. Speaking of the Psalms, though, as Ryan continues uh, his conversation, let's listen in on his his conversation about how the Psalms work and how a, how a lament psalm works. When we when we look at um, the Psalms, for instance, uh, you know you you can't help but you look through it, and um, I think you taught me this, but there you know forty percent of the Psalms are are lament psalms, like a, a big a big uh, section of them, a big chunk of them are lament psalms. And yet when we look at our Psalter, or when we look at our liturgy, we hardly ever use the lament psalms uh, in our worship. You flip through our hymnals uh, and, and you don't find many uh, hymns that are based on these kinds of lament psalms. What do you think is going on with that? Yeah. You know, this is an amazing thing. You know, on, you know, the Psalter, more than any other book uh, in the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Bible, the, the Psalms provide the words and rhythms of the music we, many of us sing at church each week. If you flip through a hymnal, so many of those hymns are based on Psalms. And yet, uh, the selectivity of Psalms at play is really uneven. Uh, the most frequently occurring type of Psalm in the Psalter, these Psalms of Lament, um, are very underrepresented by a factor of tenfold. They're underrepresented in our hymnal. So if you just knew the Psalms based on the hymns we sang in church, you would think that most Psalms, if not all Psalms, were happy. There were Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of joy. And it's just simply not the case. And I think, JJ, you know, I, 
you know how these hymns were formed the hymnals were formed uh the ins and outs of it I'm, I'm i'm not aware of but i think what we see here is this same tendency to think that god doesn't want to hear our grief the church isn't a place to be honest and authentic about depression and doubt and despair and yet those themes depression doubt and despair are shot through uh, the Psalter. So it's really, it, it's an amazing disjunction then between the words mirrored for us in the Psalms and then the words we actually sing and pray out loud through our hymnals. So Ryan gives us here, I think, an introduction to something that we have already known uh, intuitively, which is that churches uh, don't grieve. We don't, we don't, it, it appears at least some, most of the churches that I've been a part of uh, find grief to be uncomfortable. Even at Northside, we, we kind of, uh, we, we, we kind of rope off this time called the hope and healing service where we, we have grief going on. Uh, and then, and then obviously during times of funerals and, and things of that nature, but on a regular Sunday morning, lament is not usually part of what we do. And he mentioned that it's fascinating that while uh, most of the Psalms or a lot of the Psalms, uh, are Psalms of lament, we don't, ha we don't see them appear in our hymn book, uh, very often. It says to me that we haven't been comfortable with grief as a culture for hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, that's what I walk away from it thinking for the, the hymnal to be, um, for the makeup of the hymnal to be so far off the makeup of the Psalms, you know, the proportion of lament Psalms versus, you know, praise and worship the, the joyful Psalms. I just think that speaks to how ingrained it is in us culturally that we don't do grief. Where do you think that comes from? Like in our culture, like, so obviously the Israelites were comfortable enough to include it in their original hymn book, right? The Psalms and, and the Psalms, the, the book of Psalms was the original hymn book of the early church. I don't know. I wonder if there's an angle on, grief as a community versus grief as an individual. Going back to my feelings about the Psalms being anonymous and kind of broad sweeping lament, um, it feels safer to be in a shared form of grief. I mean, as we've talked yeah. about grief over the COVID-19 situation, pandemic, you know, it, it's so, you know, it's touching everybody. Um, so as a community, we have grief around the effects of that. Um, that feels a lot easier to express than just the grief that I'm experiencing in my personal life, whether it's death or sickness or loss of somebody close to me that the whole community doesn't necessarily have the same experience with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, where my mind went to right away is, uh, the, the focus on the individual that has been uh, that has really been the bane of the Western world for the last 500 years uh, and how that's kind of seeped that pattern of the world has seeped into the worship of the church. And it is uh, it is easy for us or easier, I should say, for us to grieve and lament as a community as a whole. But then when it comes to us as individuals who are supposed to be self-reliant and independent, uh, grief, like you said last week, grief just expresses a lack of control. And that's not something that we can express or something that we, uh, we're not even wired to be able to express that in any kind of way in the world that we live in. So the church, maybe the church then becomes a place where we're reprogrammed, right? I mean, that's exactly, again, to get back to a passage I think we talked about last week, and I've been talking about, it seems like now for every day for six months, but uh, Romans chapter two, uh, Romans chapter twelve, verse two passage, where we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not conforming to the patterns of the world, and this kind of focus on the individual as a, in, as an independent and self reliant being who is in control of their life, that's very much a pattern of the world. And maybe the church becomes a place where we get reprogrammed. Uh, but if we're going to do that, then we have to be we have to 
be honest about our grief. We have to sing our laments, right? We have to have a hymn book that has laments in it that is that willing that is able to educate our people uh, that lament and grief are something that are absolutely normal, absolutely natural, and in fact required, almost essential part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I feel compelled to share this at this point. Um, Kath Olson listened to our last podcast and texted me something this week that I think um, fits in well here. Um, Let's hear from the good Reverend Catherine. She, she writes, grief isn't a choice. Grief is part of the human condition. Grief is responding to a broken and sinful world. Grief, if done well, connects us to our creator. Grief denied makes us self-sufficient, and that is what's sinful. She's leaning into some of those same, that same idea of grief is part of who we are and it's got to be expressed. And that when we are trying to control that process, we, when we aren't leaning into God for that control, um, that's handling it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, it's just really interesting that, number one, I'm super psyched you listen to the podcast. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> Number two, some great, you know, great comments. So she wrote me that uh, she's proud of me for talking about grief, even though I'm an Enneagram 7, and she knows that I don't really believe in that stuff. But what she said to you, uh, I think, is, is, very, is very telling. Um, let's turn back now to Ryan's conversation as he moves into a little bit of the structure of what a lament psalm looks like. I wonder if you would be willing to uh, kind of walk through what a psalm of lament looks like and what the psalmists are up to and maybe share a couple of your own favorite psalms of lament uh, with us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing to remember about the psalms, and this is true of lament psalms as much as it is psalms of joy, is that the, the psalms are, are, there's this sense of the psalms are revelation from the ground up. Right. I mean, these are words of faith spoken by real people. Now, we don't know the people, who they were, their names, when exactly they lived. But, but these are prayers. Right. These, this is not thus saith the Lord from on high at Mount Sinai. These are prayers of people collected and inspired and canonized into our holy scriptures. So that's the first thing to kind of recognize that these are real expressions of faith. And their expressions, Calvin, John Calvin had this phrase that the Psalter reflects the full anatomy of the soul. And I love that, right? That there's nothing hidden from God in the Psalter. It's the full anatomy. And to, to press that metaphor a little bit, it's it's a type of gross anatomy, right? Because the salt the psalmist, whoever he or she is in this moment, feels this freedom to spill her guts in front of God. And, and you know, honestly, the language is kind of messy, right? So Psalms begin, Psalms are all the Psalms of the men are all of all different sorts and shapes and sizes but they have a recognizable pattern to them. They have some language that tends to recur again and again. And one of the things that's true of the Psalms of Lament is that they always begin with uh, complaint. They have some objection to bring to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Why, O Lord, have you forsaken me? Right? There's these powerful interrogatives, these questions that if you think about it, they're not really looking for information or, or data, right? These are these are more accusations than they it's are. Like we, we don't we don't feel comfortable doing that today. We don't you you don't complain to God. You don't act, you don't accuse God for sure, and yet that's exactly what we see in some of these psalms. No, that's exactly right, and it's what the psalmist leads with, right? The psalmist doesn't start with all this nice complimentary flowery language and then kind of hide the accusation or the or the powerful question at the end. No, wait. Right? He puts it out there in the beginning. God, where are you? What's going on? Why are you happening? It's as if the psalmist is saying, God, you revealed yourself to be the Emmanuel, the God with us. And now you're nowhere to be found. It's as if the psalmist is saying, God, you have to be who you promised to be. Because right now my life, in my life experience, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. I'm not experiencing you as Emmanuel. And, and so it's on you. It's kind of putting God on the hook in a certain yeah, way to say, absolutely. you promised this, now you got to deliver, right? Yeah. And that, that takes on an even, uh, I don't know if it's more profound, but it takes on, a, I think, a deeper meaning for Christians who think that, you know, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. And so when you get this 
uh, I've never heard anyone in my tradition cry out, you know, Jesus Christ, where are you? Like, why, why aren't you like, not in a public setting, right? We all have those moments, I think sometimes privately. Um, but, uh, do you, I, I guess I, my, I would assume I know the answer to this question, but do you think that these Psalms of lament that were written in the old Testament can be transitioned to talk about where's the presence of Christ, uh, in my life or where is the Christ, uh, who had promised to be with me in these moments? No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. These, these prayers, th- though I imagine them as actual prayers that people prayed in response to real situations in history, from the beginning, these prayers, by virtue of being canonized, were meant to be repeated. That, that is to say, these prayers can be our prayers. They give us permission to say similar things to God, and we can do that by simply reading back the psalm um, and making the psalmist's words our words, but I think we can also follow the psalmist's lead and, and utter our own prayers, our own laments that take on a similar form, but, but, but the details come from what we're experiencing, the tragedy, the loss, the depression that marks our own lives. So it's both permission to repeat and permission to recreate a very similar types of prayers in our lives. Nick, let me ask you a question. What would you think of a church service where you showed up and the main, the heart of the worship service was a lament focused toward Jesus Christ, asking him where he is amongst his people. That the pastor got up and said, let us, let us pray or let us, uh, let us read together and then called out Christ for not being present in the community. How would you feel about that? What kind of service would that be for you? That would be very weird because those people don't know that Jesus is with them all the time. (laughs) They haven't read the footprints poem, right? (laughs) Yeah. They need, they they need to keep reading because their faith is not where it ought to be. I, but that's, that's the thing though. I wonder if um, this is what struck me about, about what uh, Ryan was saying and, and something that I think maybe is not to you, you, and what you just said is very telling because to, to, to lament like that in, in worship is not an expression of not faith, right? It's, it's not an expression of, of doubt even. That is, that is an actual calling Yeah, it God. is. That's why we don't do it. Well, <laughs> that's maybe one of the reasons why we say we don't do it, right? We justify our behavior with this kind of, uh, and we do this a lot with a lot of other things too, with calling it doubt or not faith. To call, but to call God into account is something that the, the lament psalms do quite a bit. Uh, I mean, the one that Jesus Christ himself utters from the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is to say, uh, I think exactly as Ryan said, you know, to say that, well, God, you promised, you promised in covenant faithfulness to be here always, to be our God and we would be your people. And now we find that you are absent. And so to call God into account, or at least to start the lament with that complaint, understanding that that's probably not where it's going to end. But now to take that lament and make it into a lament about Christ, about Jesus, um, I, there's something that strikes me about that as being more honest and maybe even more powerful than, than we want to admit. But you're shaking there, your head, and I, I can tell you're uncomfortable with that idea. Well, because there are no visitors coming back to this church if they show up for the Sunday we do the lament service. Or maybe they do, man. Maybe that. Maybe they are struck <laughs> by that kind of honesty. You know, I mean, there's there's a level, there's a part of me that says that that's what people are really looking for. Is that authenticity, but in, faith? Maybe, but in all practicality, yeah. Why would a church not do a lament not as a regular Sunday morning worship service? Yeah. Because it, it's not good for visitors. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Well, and we've had this debate. How much of our service do we design for those who are there uh, every Sunday? And how much do we design for the guy or woman who walks in for the first time? Because we are supposed to be an evangelical church in the sense we're supposed to be spreading the gospel and, and drawing people into the church. But we also have a responsibility, and this is where my kind of field lies. This is where my heart lies. We also have a responsibility to deepen the faith of those who are already there. And that has to happen in worship as well as in a classroom. It has to happen in worship as well as in a small group or a Bible study or anything else. Uh, if, we're not, if we're not taking our faith 
to the next level, we're not, we're not really maturing Christians. We're not making disciples of Jesus Christ. It is an interesting question in, in worship service. Like, do we, should we engage in more lament? Should we engage in more authenticity, you know, in our worship and not just try to present our church or Christianity or Jesus Christ as this kind of shiny, shiny thing that uh, doesn't come with the real pain of human experience? I mean, what's the most lament that is expressed in a worship service that we do at Northside? And I would say maybe Ash Wednesday. Yeah. Maybe Wednesday. Thursday. Yeah. I mean, um, those, are, those are the two times when we say, okay, it's going to be about grief. You know what the difference is? A lament begins with a complaint against God. Ash Wednesday and Holy Week uh -huh. are all about how we, God has a complaint against us, right? Yeah. But laments begin with this idea that somehow God has failed, at least in our perception. Obviously, you know, and even, even here, I'm going to qualify what I'm saying. Obviously, we believe that God's going to come through. And that's why most lament psalms end with this turn to thanksgiving. But the, the lament begins with a complaint against God as though we have some kind of complaint to bring against God. We, one of the things, it, it, it represents this kind of gap in experience. So we, we learn so much about God from tradition and from reason and from scripture. We learn all the stuff about God. But it's that fourth piece of the Wesleyan, Wesleyan quadrilateral that's, that's really important. At least it was for Wesley. Uh, and that's experience. Like, what is our experience teaching us about our relationship with God? Oh, I'm so glad you said that, James, because <laughs> my favorite part of this whole segment of Dr. Bonfiglio's conversation with you, when he talks about the way the psalmists are spilling their guts to God, yeah, it really put perspective on me for the relationship that those psalmists felt they had with God. Yeah. Do you walk up to the cashier at the grocery store and start telling them about all your problems? No, no. Do you even tell your spouse, you know, your mama, all your problems? Right. No. Yeah. But they had the nerve to tell God all their problems. And there's definitely this like moment of processing for me where I'm like, all right, if I've really got a relationship with Jesus Christ, personal because you know yeah. you a personal relationship with jesus christ yeah absolutely then personal it's experience. not all flowers and roses to be able to say i'm mad about something yeah yeah I, that, that, that takes an authenticity of relationship i think that i think that hits it exactly what the heart of maybe this entire three-part series is about because that's exactly right in the sense of like in the sense of like you have to have that deep relationship with Jesus Christ in order to come to him with a meaningful lament. You have to have that deep relationship with God in order to say, God, where are you? Like you, you have to be here. You need to be here. You are required to be here. Right. Uh, that, 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 that kind of covenantal relationship that is deep on a very personal level, on the level of human experience on the level of personal experience is what animates the rest of everything else we do, all of the tradition, all of the reason, all of the scripture that we read, none of it means anything if we don't have that animation that comes with the experience of Jesus Christ uh, as our personal Lord and Savior, right? Uh, the experience of Jesus Christ for us and with us. And when that, when that experience is broken, when we feel like Jesus isn't here with us or isn't for us, that's a place, that's the gap in experience where I think lament can begin to bubble up. And maybe, maybe could be, maybe could be something really powerful for the church to engage in. Um, if nothing else, even if it just led us back to a corrective of ourselves, even if it just led us back to this understanding that we're the ones who have fallen away or we're the ones who have drifted away, even if that's the case, I think God can handle the complaint. Jesus Christ is, calls us friend in the book of John. Right. If we do what he says, if we obey his commands of love and he how does he respond to Thomas when Thomas doubts him? Right. It isn't with that much. It isn't with animosity. It's with love and encouragement and, and forgiveness. So Jesus can handle Jesus can handle our complaint. 
he can handle our indignation even, I think. Well, in that, that perspective of understanding the relationship the psalmist must have with God yeah. is a, then leads you to a different interpretation of that lament, God, where are you? Yeah. Then it doesn't become an existential crisis. Right. It's a, come on, man. Come on, man. Yeah. Like yeah. it's a, the, the, the um, subtext is different. Right. The, the tone is different. The, you know, while the words may be the same, the meaning behind them does shift based on Absolutely. Your, you know, where that psalmist is speaking from. And if they're speaking from this place of relationship, that comes out differently. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Which, I mean, just think about what that means in terms of what that means in terms of Jesus Christ, who is God's only son, crying out this lament hanging on the cross. Is there anybody who has any better reason to lodge a complaint with God than with God's only son hanging on the cross, right? I mean, you talk about a close relationship. I mean, they are the same. They are the same, it will be believed. Yeah. That, that relationship piece, I think, is absolutely important. And I'll say this. I want to add this. Uh, on the level of God being able to handle our complaint, you know, we look at um, – right now we're doing a series on the wisdom literature, and we're looking at Job. We've looked at Ecclesiastes, and we've looked at uh, the Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes and now into Job, Job really gets into a wrestling match with his friends about the nature of God and then finally with God himself. And there is a level of calling God into uh, account accountability for what for God's uh, absolute uh, absence in, in Job's life during this catastrophe of what's going on with him. Um, and at the end of the day, he has to realize that we can bring complaint to God and God, God accepts our complaint. That is something that God even says in the book of Job, that, that Job has spoken rightly to do this. But at the end of the day, we also have to accept uh, the wisdom of God and, and whatever God is, is doing. We are a small part, a small piece of God's creation and God's project and God's plan. So we can bring the complaint. And I think just expressing the complaint is what leads us back to Thanksgiving and leads us back to, to um, restored relationship with God and, and able to give, give our Thanksgiving and praise to God. It's when we kind of deny the complaint and we just bury it in ourselves. Whether we do that as an individual or we do that as a church, that it, it kind of festers and maybe even creates, maybe even becomes the seed of doubt and, and disbelief at some point. Well, there's a, there's a lack of relationship there. If you feel like that's something you can't ask God, God ain't never going to leave you. That's right. I, you would know, you would know if God left you because you would cease to exist, right? He is the ground of all being, right? <laughs> so as long as you're breathing, as long as you're breathing, God is there uh and god's listening god's listening so that's i mean that's something i think that we just don't do enough of in the church when the when the psalmist decides to throw this complaint up to god uh what what does she do with that afterwards what is what does the psalmist do with that complaint how did, how does the psalmist work through that uh, typically in a psalm? Well, what typically follows in kind of that recognizable pattern that's in psalms of laments is uh, uh, the complaint is followed by a petition. Some, per, you know, some ask of God, okay, God, where are you? I need you to show up and here's how. And what's striking to me about the psalms of lament in this way is that the ways in which the psalmist asks God to show up or the petitions offered are usually more general than specific, right? It's so, it's things like give light to my eyes, uh, save me from the depths of despair, right? It, it's very emotional and evocative. It's not, you know, give me money so I can pay my mortgage. That's a real <laughs> thing. But but this, the psalmist is approaching it slightly differently. And, and with Is that words, true of the complaints as well? Are the complaints specific or general or is there a shift there? The, that's a good question. I would say it's more general. So there's okay. a, a particular complaint about the kind of God's absence or God's lack of, of attention. Sometimes it's also about uh, enemies and adversaries, mm -hmm. right? So yes, God is absent, God's not attending, but the problem is that there's some external threat 
whether metaphorized as enemies or or whether actual enemies that was a real mm-hmm. part of israel's yeah. history to be facing uh threat and siege and so forth uh from various foreigners Okay. But at that point, you know, JJ, here's the key moment for these Psalms of Lament, right? So you have this complaint, you have the petition, and then usually somewhere near the middle or the, 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 the end of the Psalm of Lament, you have this transition, right? You have this, this abrupt shift from that jarring language of lament to expressions of trust and expressions of praise. Like, like the Psalm does a complete 180 in the middle and the situation seems to be resolved. And the psalmist's last words often are to praise God for God's goodness and, and, and for, for showing up in some act of deliverance that remains undescribed to us. We don't know what it is, uh, but we get this sense that something materially and spiritually has changed for the psalmist. Does that imply that um, perhaps the psalm wasn't written all at once, or does it does it provide for us a, a, blue, a blueprint for how we should deal with uh, grief? I mean, do we always pivot to this moment of thanksgivingness? Well, let me, let me take those two questions in turn. The first is, I think you're exactly right, that the Psalms of Lament are really prayers in retrospective, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't think we should imagine the psalmist praying, and you know, he, she prays through the first four verses, and then suddenly by verse five, everything's all resolved, right? I think I like to imagine... Um, you know, that these prayers represent a span of weeks or months, maybe even years, right? So you begin this lament, you begin this complaint and petition, and you wait on God, and you wait, and you re-lament, and you re-petition, right? You, you, that, that first part of the psalm might go in cycles again and again and again. And I can imagine the psalmist at some point feeling like it's never going to happen. This is never going to change. And then it does. Uh, and so that last part of the psalm is kind of the, the retrospective at the other, on the other side of deliverance. The psalmist is looking back, recounting where she used to be, and now celebrating that she's no longer there. But I don't, I don't think that transition is quick. I don't think it's meant to walk us through that transition such that by the end of praying the prayer or the psalm, we should be at that same place. Um, we need to, it's a long time frame. So here, uh, Ryan gives us a um, a little bit of a, a little bit more of the structure of what a lament psalm looks like. While they begin with this complaint that we've been talking about, they they do tend to have, in fact, all of them except for one, Psalm eighty eight, uh, have this shift or this turn toward thanksgiving and praise and trust in God. Um, in other words, God shows up at the end. Uh, he shows up, he delivers at the end. It was really interesting. I thought that was new information for me to hear the idea of the Psalms being written um, over a long period of time. That the Psalms, I think in my mind, I just assumed, you know, Bruce has sat down and sketched out those 20 verses all in one shot. Yeah. Maybe that the whole thing was retrospective. So it's interesting to consider a world where the psalmist writes a complaint, takes a break, lives life, comes back with a shifted perspective. Yeah. So, so this idea that maybe the entire psalm itself is written in retrospective, like you can imagine that in the time of darkness, in the time when you really feel that God isn't there, maybe you're not saying anything at all. But then you go back after the shift, after the perspective change, right? And, and you write down what you remember your feelings to be in that moment. And maybe you have confidence to write that uh, or, or even lament that way because you know how it turns out in the end. Um, but the idea also of, of writing the first part and then walking away and waiting and lamenting and waiting and, and lamenting and waiting on God I think there's some power to that idea. It put me in uh, thought of, you know, like it's not a thing that I do, but I know that some people journal. Yeah. Um, 
but really what it would look like as we brought up earlier, if I wrote my own lament. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like if I channeled some of the feelings that I felt when I felt them. Right. And took the time to write them down and then it came back a year later or a month later and looked at, you know, how, how had my perspective changed on those feelings? Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, one of the things that you and I've talked about doing, um, is a, a series on the spiritual disciplines and journal journaling is one of those spiritual disciplines for exactly that reason. I think to see, to see the perspective change, to see where God has, uh, interacted and where God has intervened and where God has shown up in places where we were really desperate for him to do so. Um, and I think that's what we see. I think a lot in this lament Psalms recently, we have been talking about in at Northside, the idea that God is, is doing something new at Northside and that God can use these moments of darkness, uh, these moments of, of what we consider to be uh, despair or grief even, that really that becomes the fertile soil which God can plant something new. And we've been talking about the fact of our online presence has been uh, obviously uh, exponentially grown during this time, something that we're going to continue to do uh, for a while, but also I think continue in some form or another, even after, even after this uh, crisis is over. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of new things happening, growing out of, out of this, this darkness that we, we consider ourselves to be in right now. There is this idea that uh, we may begin a lament or we may begin our expressions of grief with this complaint toward God, but there's also a, a trust and a, and a faithfulness that, that says we also are confident that God is going to use this and God is going to do something new. Uh, we have confidence that God will show up. Even Christ hanging on the cross has to, th has to think it's important to express those moments. And again, I think lament is something that we should be doing more of. But the, ex the expression of lament, if you're right, if, you, if what you were saying before, Nick, is right about relationship if the expression of lament is a communication not just of how i feel right now but also the strength of our relationship then there's also there a trust and faith that god's going to hear that complaint and that god is going to answer maybe not the way that i want god to answer but god is going to answer i hope that part of the lament is believing that god is there yeah yeah that he hears the complaint yeah um, and the fact that you're earnestly looking for an answer. Um, what do you do between point A and point B? You know, in this world of writing a psalm where you have that lament, you have that complaint to God, and it takes time for that to be worked on. So what are you doing moving forward with that time going on? You know, like the time... There's still life to be lived and you still don't have your answer yet. Yeah. I think you, you wait, you wait, you remain faithful to the God that you are confident is going to show up. Waiting itself is a spiritual, not only a spiritual discipline, but probably a spiritual gift too. So but that's real life. That is that, real life. That that's just real life. Like, I'm going to have a complaint with God, and it's not getting solved instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that might be one of the, the bigger points I hope people will take away from our podcast is the idea that um, these psalms are not, they're not magic spells, right? They're not like, if I just read through the psalm, I'll get to the point where I am also thanksgiving and trustworthy, you know, trusting and, and uh, leaning on God. But there is a there is a whole life, you know, there is a, there's a time period lived in each song. There's a story being told in each lament that is, I think, there to give us confidence that there is a pattern to the way that God operates with us. Part of that pattern is our willingness to express the complaint in the first place. Yeah. Well, we're going to break there uh, and finish the rest of our conversation with Dr. Bonfiglio next week. Nick, do you have any final thoughts? I'm going to stick with my favorite part was getting into the conversation about having that relationship with God and really the closeness that you've got to feel to bring that complaint and be earnest about it. Right. Yeah, we can walk up to people on the street and have a complaint with them. That's not the same thing. That's right. 
talking right. about a real earnest desire for an answer. I think that's, um, I think it's probably my favorite part too. And I, I wonder if that doesn't stretch into our other relationships in our life that you have a relationship where like you and I, Nick, let's take you and I, for an example, the, the issue of our friendship is settled. You and I are going to be friends, but that doesn't mean that you don't have complaints to come to me with. Right. And it doesn't mean that I don't have complaints to come to you with. Right. That is no, something that's going to happen. Uh, also given the nature of our work relationship, but also just in our friendship, you know, there's going to be things that you and I disagree on and things that we, um, we really need. We really, really get frustrated about with each other, but the issue of our friendship is settled. And then we have that relationship that can sustain the complaint. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being with us, uh, Northside and Nick, thank you for joining us for this conversation and we will see you next week. See you next week.